If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at at Lakeview, and I uh, would love to, to get to know you if you're a guest here today or just someone I haven't gotten to meet yet uh, in the church. Uh, but it is, it's a privilege, really is a privilege to be able to, to come and share God's Word. I always love doing that no matter what the setting. Uh, but to this group in particular, I just um, just love your, your hunger for the truth um, and, and just receptivity and encouragement that you are always uh, eager to share, so really is a delight to, to speak with you. And we are uh, we're continuing our study in the Beatitudes, and we are on uh, Beatitude number five, and you can kind of either open up your notes or open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. We'll stop there quickly, and then we'll be moving on from there. But in these Beatitudes, right, they're, they're a part of a larger context, something called the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Jesus is sharing. And, and he has announced in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, he's announced that his kingdom has come, right? Uh, in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God has already arrived in the world. And so the kingdom of God, which you know the Jews in, in his day would have envisioned as something pertaining to the future, the kingdom of God has to do with, with God coming and making everything right, and restoring all things, and and putting Israel's enemies under his feet, right? That that's all included in their definition of the kingdom of God, and that's in Jesus' definition as well. But what's unique about what he introduces here is that the kingdom has already begun, right in the middle of history. And so God's people and and, and the members of Christ's kingdom they they live in between the times. They live in this age. But they also live in the time when, when this future kingdom has overlapped life today. And so that, that characterizes how we live. And Jesus starts this, this sermon with these, these blessings, these pronouncement of uh, what are the character traits of the people that are in his kingdom. And they have everything to do with the fact that we, we right now live in a fallen world. And, and they touch fallen realities. They touch things like suffering and persecution and mourning and poverty in spirit. But, but in this, we are living another storyline, and we are living belonging to another world. And, 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 and so what, what, what he's saying here is that there's more that's happening than just meets the eye when we encounter the realities of the world around us. And, and that applies as well to the topic we're going to look at today, which is Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And mercy, that, that's, a, that's a familiar word to us. But what exactly does Jesus mean by mercy here? Well, Sinclair Ferguson helps. He says, mercy relieves the consequences of sin in the lives of others both sinners and those sinned against, right? Mercy locates people in another storyline than just the consequences of sin and the fall. It, it, it introduces another principle that comes into play in how we see people and interact with them. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it was describing the fall of man, said that mankind fell into a state of sin and misery, and, and we know that's true. We know that from our experience, 
And we know that from what we encounter in the world around us. But we also know that that's not the end of the story. God, ever since the fall, has, has been on the redemptive move. He has been reversing the effects of sin and misery in people's lives on his way to making all things new in the end. And so mercy internalizes God's work of redemption and, res- and restoration. It, it interrupts the, the normal trajectory of the fall that's at work in the world. And, and, and it does not hold people's sin against them, and it is not careless toward the consequences people experience as a result of their sin or of others. And so the opposite of mercy, right, to, to be merciless is to come into contact with these realities in, in a fallen world and to respond with things like impatience, irritability, cynicism, neglect, callousness, excuses, assumptions, unforgiveness, exacting demands, Right, to, to be merciless is to have no redemptive outlook in how we view and respond to the reality of sin in people's lives. It is, it's a hardness of heart, but, but to be merciful is to have a heart that has been melted by the mercy of God. I love this thought from Thomas Watson. He says, what is meant by mercifulness? I answer, it is a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. And so when when mercy comes into contact with offenses in relationships, it looks like forgiveness. And when mercy comes into contact with needs in a broken world, it looks like compassion and provision. And and there's, there's so much that the Bible has to say about this. And honestly, I was I was struggling a little bit yesterday thinking through where exactly in God's word do we want to see this in action? But we see uh, something of both of these elements present in Jesus' famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you'd flip over to Luke chapter 10, and we will read that together. Luke chapter 10, and we will start in the context here in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right, his question reveals what's inside of his heart. If I'm to love my neighbor, who exactly is included in that? And, and, and with the assumption, uh, in other words, 
Who is deserving of my love? And, and Luke clues us into his motive here. He, he's seeking to justify himself. He, he's seeking to, to limit the extent of God's commandments to manageable proportions. I can do this as, you know, as long as we're talking reasonable standards here, Jesus. Who exactly is my neighbor? And then I can find out whether or not I can fulfill this commandment and obey God, which shows he, he believes he can obey the commandments of God and enter the kingdom without himself needing the mercy of God, right? If this is something he can do because he's limited its impact, then he's placed himself in a position of not really needing the mercy and forgiveness of God for himself. And that clarifies what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Or when James 2.13 says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That ought to bother us a little bit when you, when you come across that. Is, that. is that teaching salvation by works? Right? Unless I show mercy, then I'm not going to receive mercy myself. Is there some sort of relationship between my showing mercy to others and whether or not God is going to forgive me? Well, clearly there is here. But what Jesus isn't saying is that my showing mercy to people is what causes God to be merciful to me. He, he's saying that there is a necessary effect in us that comes from being a recipient of the kindness of God. And, and if we are restricted and stingy in our mercy toward others, it might reveal that we do not know the mercy of God because it's something that we don't feel like we need. And so Jesus responds and helps us, man, by sharing a radical story. It, it's familiar to us, uh, but it would have been shocking to them in his day. So uh, let's read together in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, we're going to see in a moment, Jesus is presenting this as a paradigm for mercy. And so we, we notice several characteristics of, of mercy uh, that are present in this story. And the first is that mercy values people over scruples and convenience. Uh, years ago, there was a study that was done at Princeton Theological Seminary. And they had several uh, seminary students and pastors come in 
and they asked them to prepare, prepare a talk on, on some subject. And in some cases, they actually asked them to prepare a talk on, on the Good Samaritan story. And, uh, it, and then they, they sent them off to another place on campus. And, and to some of the, the people, uh, they, they said, okay, you're running late and you have to be there you know, pretty soon. And, and to others, they, they said, yeah, a little bit extra time, just you, know, you have to arrive in this room at this time or whatever it was. Um, and, and what they had done is they had, they had somebody that was uh, in an alleyway on the campus, and it was a cold winter day, and, and he was hunched over and, and moaning and appeared to be injured. And uh, a number of the students just passed on by this man on their way to give a talk about the Good Samaritan story. Um, and and, and, and they, they found that the, the key difference wasn't so much were they thinking about these truths, uh, wasn't so much their expression of why, you know, because they asked them, why do you want to be in ministry? Oh, I really want to help people, right? The people who gave those answers just walked right on by. It was all a matter of whether or not they were told they were running late. And and it's, there's reality to that, and I don't know if, if any of us would presume we would have done something different in, the, in those circumstances, but what it shows us is that there's very easy, there's, there could so often be a disconnect between the truth that we claim to know and what we're willing to do. And Jesus introduces here a, a stark disconnect here, because the first two characters who arrive on, on the scene are the religious leaders of the day. There's the priest and the Levite, the, the, the people that God had commissioned to do works of mercy, to, to minister among his, his people, and in both cases, uh, they see the man and they pass on by on the other side. And, and, and you know, if you just kind of imagine what, what might be running through their head in this moment, um, I imagine that there's some sort of mental justification that they have as to why they do this. I mean, it's, it's probably not just out of blatant carelessness. Um, perhaps like those seminary students, they felt like they were running late to do some other more important work of ministry, although it's interesting, Jesus says that, that they were heading down, which, which, you know, whenever you go up in the Bible, you're heading up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem had a higher elevation, and so if somebody's going up, they're going toward Jerusalem, if they're coming down, they're coming away, so uh, it, it appears that they had already discharged their responsibilities there. Um, but the, in the Old Testament law, if, if, a, if a priest uh, were to come into contact with a dead body, uh, then they would become ceremonially unclean, and they wouldn't be able to minister in the service of God. So maybe they're trying to avoid that kind of situation. But whatever is going on here, and whatever excuse might be coming up in their mind, what is clear is that Jesus views the effect of their actions as merciless. Because here is somebody in clear need, and they walk right on by. And, and Jesus uh, was often, in, in his interactions with the Pharisees, this, this was constantly something that would come up. Uh, he, he told them in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 13, when, when they were opposing his work and, and they were calling into question, Jesus, why are you hanging out with certain people, dining with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you in association with people like this? He, he quoted from Hosea 6, and he said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
And then in Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Right? They're, they're tithing out of their spice rack and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so apparently the, the Pharisees' religious energy and devotion extended only as far as their pet topics and self-serving practices. They, they had distanced themselves from the heart of God because God, ever since the fall, has been on the redemptive move. He has been showing mercy to those in need and, and, to, and to fall in love with religious scruples and, and, and neglect his work in this world is to, is to reveal, in their case, that their heart did not belong to him. All right, second, mercy is, is an attitude uh, that looks like compassion and an action that looks like care. I just, just notice these descriptions here. It says he, he saw him in verse 33. Right? He doesn't look away. He, he, he is slow enough in moving through life to notice when people are in distress, right? To take notice of what is going on around them. And then verse 33, he, he had compassion. So there, there's an internal impulse here. He, like Jesus often was, was moved with pity. And so his heart is, is burdened toward the need that is in front of him. Uh, but it doesn't end there, right? It, this isn't just nice feelings uh, and, and best intentions. He offers practical help in verse 34. He went to him, and, and, then, it, and then the word and just keeps showing up in the sentence, and bound him, and then set him on his animal, and brought him to an end, and took care of him, and on the next day, he does more, right? There, there, there doesn't seem to be any uh, limits um, to the kind of tangible care that he is bringing to this man's benefit. And then this comes at a cost, right? The third thing here is that mercy embraces generosity and sacrifice. So he spends two denarii, uh, which in that day would have been two days wages, and then he also misses at least two days worth of work in order to help this man. Timothy Keller says, the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, risked his safety destroyed his schedule, and became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. Are we as Christians obeying this command personally? Are we as a church obeying this command corporately? All right, and finally, uh, mercy seeks the undeserving and unlovable. Look at verse 36. Jesus asked this man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Now, uh, what do you notice? Okay, what is strange about the question that Jesus asks this man? This is audience participation time, so you can answer this. What's, what, does Jesus ask the same question that he asked him? He takes what he asked him and he flips it around, right? The, the question that the man came to Jesus with was, who is my neighbor? 
And, and that's not what Jesus asks. He asks, which one proved to be a neighbor? Right? To whom are you a neighbor? Right? He, he turns it around. Right? He takes the emphasis off of who is the person that I'm supposed to bring care to, and, and, and he puts it on what does it look like to be a neighbor to those around you. But, but in, in doing that, what he does is he forces this man to admit and to, and to say with his words, who's the hero of the story here? Right now, you and I are used to the concept of a good Samaritan, right? There's just part of the problem when we read these parables is they've become so familiar to us and we're distant from them culturally that something is like this glaring, obnoxious detail and to us we just read over it like it's totally normal uh, because we're used to hearing about Good Samaritan hospitals and we use the phrase Good Samaritan uh, you know, to refer to a really nice person, somebody who's kind toward others. In, in Jesus' day, the phrase Good Samaritan, that, that would have been an oxymoron. That would have been like a kind terrorist. I mean, the, the, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They detested them. They, they, there was racial animosity toward them. They, they viewed them as, as uh, religiously compromised. And so there's, there's generations of animosity toward the Samaritans that, ha, that has been built up over time. right? And, and so when, when Jesus says, okay, a priest came, a Levite came, and then he mentions a Samaritan, uh, the people in the crowds would have started booing when he arrived on the scene because they, you know they, they expect that was the Samaritan going to kick him while he's down run over him what do you expect you know people like that are always doing that kind of thing uh, but but what Jesus does here is he casts him as the hero of the story and again it's 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 unexpected enough that the priest and the Levite pass the man by and so as you're listening to Jesus' story, you could probably think, I know what's going to come next. The kind Jewish farmer is going to step in and save the day, right? So maybe it's got like this anti-clerical bent, and, and it's like the commoner Jew. He's, he's the righteous one that's going to step in and, and make everything right. But here, it is the Jew who has, is at the mercy of the Samaritan. And this is humbling, and what Jesus is saying to this man is, if you were in that position, wouldn't you want a Samaritan's care? Wouldn't you be so desperate that you would want to receive help even from a man like this? And then he turns around to him and says, okay, go and do the same. And so what Jesus provides an answer to this man's question even without providing an answer. Who's my neighbor? Even my enemy is my neighbor if he is in need. Luke chapter 6, verse 31 says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward, we're going to come back to that, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, you and me included in that, 
And then Jesus roots all this in this principle, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Uh, there's an excellent book that several of you have read titled The Praying Life uh, by Paul Miller. And in that book, he, he tells about um, a relationship that he had with a, a co-worker and a, a ministry partner named Bob. I don't know if that's his real name or not. I mean, that'd be interesting if he's like calling him out in the book. So probably not named Bob, but he calls him Bob in, in the story. And, and, and Bob was very irritable toward Paul. And, and Bob made it clear that he didn't like him. Paul Miller writes, he didn't like the way I looked, dressed, or talked. And that was just for openers. Every couple of years, his anger would flare out at me, but generally he treated me like a servant. And then Paul uh, decided that he would begin to regularly pray for Bob. And, and within a year, uh, Bob began to go through suffering, and, and Paul was able to serve him. And then several years later, he went through even more suffering, and, and Paul had the opportunity to serve him again. And he said, this time his suffering was so severe that he couldn't help but feel my love and care for him. For the first time in our relationship, his attitude toward me softened significantly. And Paul was like the Samaritan here, serving the one who despised him. All right, so something for all of us to consider Toward whom are you restricted in your mercy? Right, whom are you trying to leave out of your definition of a neighbor? Um, and perhaps if, if we're honest, some of the, the racial dynamics that are in this text, maybe that's uh, a live issue for you. Certain people, certain classes of people or ethnicities uh, that you tend to view as lazy or freeloading or unmotivated. Um, and so if you, if you see them in a position of need, there are all sorts of assumptions that come running through your head as to how they ended up in those circumstances. And obviously they're just dealing with the consequences of their own mistakes and foolish actions of the past. And that is what runs through your head rather than an impulse to step in and help. Maybe it's closer to home, uh, people that you might not describe as your enemies, but it's, it's relationally challenging. Uh, they have hurt you or they have offended you, and, and so you've taken on a cynical posture toward them. You, you, you've abandoned seeking to assume the best about their motives, and so you're not eager to be sympathetic to them when, when, uh, to what they're experiencing or going through. Um, maybe it's in your, your family or in the church that you've, you've served someone again and again, and, and it feels like uh, that's not appreciated, that, that has become uh, expected on their, on their part. And, and so they're, they're just assuming no matter what they say, no matter what they do to you, uh, no matter how many times you're going to step in and care again. And, and over time, that's just begun to tear into you, and, 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 and you, you're having to manage uh, how you feel toward them and, 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 and whether or not you're able to continue to serve with joy. Now listen, I, I can only uh, preach one thing at a time. I haven't figured out how to do anything else besides that. Um, so, you know, obviously, there's wisdom that needs to come into play in how we interact with the needs around us and people that we're giving care to. The Lord doesn't want us to be 
driven by manipulation or, or control. Uh, we need to be led by the Spirit in, in the ways that we step in to sacrifice and serve. But, but it does call us, clearly Jesus is calling us here to have a heart that is overflowing with mercy. Uh, look what Jesus says in verse 37. He said to him, you go and do likewise. So something for us to consider this morning. How are you involved in ministries of compassion for hurting people in our world? Because Jesus says that there's real blessing in this. And he might be echoing Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Uh, Thomas Watson kind of describes, well, what does considering mean uh, there? And, and, and he gives a, a few things. He says, consider that this could have been you. So but before we're ready to judge or dismiss or move on, place yourself in those circumstances. Right? That, that's the golden rule that Jesus gives us. Do unto others as uh, you would have them do to you. If you, if you were in that position, uh, what would you be looking to receive from others? Uh, consider what life feels like for them. So often uh, when we are unsympathetic toward people because we don't understand their challenges and their people that we have come over time to, to have a little bit more of a cynical posture toward them, we, we've stopped placing ourselves in their position and understanding uh, what they're going through and, and what, how this actually feels, that there's real suffering taking place. Um, and therefore, we've probably not done what... Paul Miller does here is uh, pray for them that they would receive mercy and then consider how God is calling you to help relieve suffering and just two ways that we can do that uh, and that I know many of you are involved in doing uh, one is sacrificial giving as you give um, through the church and as you give through other ministries like uh, Samaritan's Purse, uh, there's that title right there, uh, or Compassion International, or a whole host of ministries that seek to, to bring ongoing support to those in, in poverty. Because I, I know there, there are situations where we can step in and, and do one thing and it, it furthers things along a little bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't help some of the systemic issues that are realities in, in our society and the world around us. And so there are, there are ministries that, that have uh, teams of people that are, that are providing care that we can give toward them. Uh, and, then, and sometimes God's just calling us to, to give directly to a need. Maybe it's somebody you know. Maybe it's a stranger. Um, and, and obviously, again, there's, there's wisdom that informs that, but there ought to be in, inside of us an, an impulse toward generosity, some ways that really takes a risk. I mean, it was, a, it was a risk for this man to step in to serve this guy, not knowing, okay, what, what's going what's gonna to come to me? Am I going to fall into the same fate, same robbers? Are they going to come and take advantage of me if I'm stepping in to serve? And, and Jesus pushes all that toward the side here and says, uh, just be generous here. Um, and then serving in, in works of mercy. And I know many of you are involved in, in Several of these, uh, several serve with uh, living alternatives, uh, bringing care to the oppressed, both to the unborn and to uh, young women that are in positions of need, and they need counsel, they need provision, they need support, they, they need um, uh, loving uh, conversations and compassion that are going to help guide them uh, toward uh, what is life-sustaining and merciful. 
uh, One Heart NOLA, bringing uh, uh, support to the foster care system and, 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 and children and, and families that are involved in, in foster care. I know several of you uh, either give toward that or uh, step in and, and help in any tangible ways that you can. We have uh, Ms. Andre Ragus back with Healthcare Solutions. They have the team down right now. I've got Abigail at Rancho 3M this week, um, efforts with the care team, uh, and then just a variety of ways that uh, Mercy Ministry takes place in the church that either through um, you spending time and, 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 and arriving on the scene and, and helping bring support or through your giving, and then another variety of ways that, that you're involved in, in, in ways that maybe we will never find out about the people that you have spent hour after hour uh, bringing them to uh, hospital appointments and doctor's visits and caring for them, family members and, and friends in their, in their time of need. And so you are an extension of of God's mercy toward those who are suffering. Like all the Beatitudes, this one, this one comes with a reward, and these rewards are all over the Bible. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Lends to the Lord. That, that's, that's interesting right there. Because then it sounds like in some way, God becomes in, in our debt when we give to others. It's like God says, you give to them and I'll owe you one. It's coming your way, which, which of course, I mean, this is just shattering because uh, we are the, the ones who are in, in debt to God. We owe him everything. We don't deserve anything from God, and yet in his care and in his generosity, he has determined to bestow reward after reward on us for every act of sacrifice, every time we release our hands on our money and allow it to fall to bless those around us. That is noticed by him, that is collected together in his care, and he will reward us now and, and in eternity. But it is essential for us to remember who we are in the, the gospel story of mercy. Um, you know, when you, when you think about the Good Samaritan, there is an example that Jesus is giving to us here. But first and foremost, you know, who are we in that story? We're not the Good Samaritan. We're not the ones stepping in to save the day. We are the robbers and we are the robbed. Right? We, we are the people that are with our own selfishness and our own violence hurting those around us, and we are those who are broken and beaten down and have been stolen from and are in desperate need. And Jesus comes in, and he comes to us, foreigners and enemies that we are, and he shows us mercy at the greatest cost, and he spends all of his resources. He places himself in the position of vulnerability. He allows himself to be attacked and suffer in our place in order to bring us all the way home to God, the God who is rich in mercy, who has abundantly bestowed his mercy on our lives, fills us up to the brim and calls us uh, to overflow in mercy toward those around us. If that's issues and relationships and offenses, that, that mercy fills up and it, and it overflows and it finds them and it looks like forgiveness. It looks like 
patience. It looks like kindness to the undeserving. And as it comes into contact with, with needs and God uh, brings in provision into your life and, and put, puts you in a position in a way that you can uh, serve and help, it, it looks like care and it looks like compassion and it looks like giving and it looks like restoring those who are broken to the Lord. And so uh, we need to know and, re- and regularly stare at the mercy of God and pray that it would overflow in mercy toward those around us, knowing we have received mercy and we will receive reward for all eternity. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your truth, Lord, how it rescues us from ourselves. Lord, I know we have our own needs, our own thoughts, Lord, our own commentary that runs through our heads. And, and sometimes we can be absorbed in those things. Um, but God, thank you that your mercy has found us. And thank you that your call has come to us. Lord, your call to live the lifestyle of your kingdom. Lord, your kingdom that has invaded this world and has brought mercy to bear on fallen realities. It has pulled us in and now is calling us to extend that mercy to others. God, would we be generous as you lead us? Would we be responsive to um, the drawing of the Holy Spirit? Or whatever situation calls for our compassion and care, if that's people in our extended family, if that's uh, parents or grandchildren, Lord, if, uh, if, if that is uh, people in the church that we're aware of needs that you have enabled us to provide in some way to, to serve those, uh, Lord, who are broken, or if that's a stranger on a street, Lord, in, in whatever way that you lead us to show mercy, would we listen, would we respond, and would we receive great reward from you in all eternity? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again uh, for your attentiveness and and receptivity. On the back of your notes, there are some discussion questions there, so uh, that'll frame um, how you'll engage at the tables uh, for the next little bit of time. Thank you so much.